we're not yet a country that can bring itself to actively hate our neighbors just because they have views that differ from ours. And someone has to preserve the possibility of conversation. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Pulitzer-winning journalist Brad Stevens, an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and the editor-in-chief of Sapir, a journal of Jewish conversations. Brad came to the Times after a long career with the Wall Street Journal, where he was deputy editorial page editor and a foreign affair columnist. Before that, he was the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. Brad is the author of America in Retreat, the new isolationism and the coming global disorder, and the recipient of numerous awards and distinction, including the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary. He and his wife, Corina de Fonseca Volheim, a music critic for the Times, live with their three children in New York and Hamburg, Germany. Brett and I talked about Sapir, the importance of publishing a wide range of opinions, and how social media has affected public discourse. Take a listen. Brett, tell us a little bit if there's something in your upbringing that said that you would be doing what you're doing now. When I was a child, my father wrote a weekly column. I was always um, interested in opinion journalism and always something of a contrarian. Journalism is a wonderful profession for people who like to dabble in lots of different subjects. And that sort of through a process of serendipity led me to start covering the Middle East, ultimately led to my becoming the editor of the Jerusalem Post, a return to the Wall Street Journal, and many years later, uh, on the one hand, to the New York Times, and then to starting uh, Sapir, which is um, really a passion project. So, So Sapir, in a way, brings together a little bit of all your different streams there, right? The Jewish stream, the journalistic stream, but it adds a sense of depth and a sense of sort of ideas that is not, it goes a little bit beyond journalism, right? Well, my first job out of college was as a junior editor at Commentary Magazine. So right. I was familiar with the world of small Jewish magazines, of which there are many, even if they're not formally Jewish. I mean, right. The New Republic, in effect, is a Jewish magazine. Descent, <laughs> in effect, is a Jewish magazine. And then, of course, there are many others who are explicitly that. Sapir came around with sort of three ideas in particular that I think distinguished it from other publications. The first was that we wanted to draw a much broader tent ideologically than, uh, say, commentary or the New Republic, we wanted to make sure, I wanted to be sure that I would include writers whose views I emphatically did not agree with. And so if you've been reading Sapir, you will see from Yehuda Kurtzer to Benny Morris, 
to Anshul Pfeffer, to Susie Linfield in the current issue. There are writers who are considerably to the left of where I am. And there's some writers who are somewhere to the right uh, of where I am. I also wanted a broad stream religiously. I didn't want simply, I wanted people with distinctive religious affiliation, uh, Jewish affiliations, although not, it's not only Jews who write for us. Right. Um, but uh, I wanted to brought a big tent. So that was the first point. The second point that mattered was that I wanted us to be more prescriptive than other magazines. I, I sort of read essays in other magazines and you might get a very good diagnosis of the problem, but you rarely get a side of the article that says, here's what we should do about it. And at the heart of what Sapir was all about was the idea that we need to have ideas concrete ideas for a flourishing Jewish future. Right. And, and the third aspect is I'm not necessarily interested in a huge audience. I'm interested in an influential audience. And there's a difference. I feel, you know, look, if you put enough money into anything, you can reach, in theory, a lot of readers. But whether you're actually uh, touching them uh, or moving the needle in terms of policy is, is another question. Yeah. My idea is that it's important to reach the readers who, who count, who are able to put philanthropic dollars or organizational muscle, or even just um, a kind of active, sense of idealistic activism in pursuit of uh, what I keep calling the, a thriving Jewish future. That's right. the core goal. Right. And, and all these goals are complicated in this day and age, right? Uh, to appeal to a broader audience is it's complicated. We live in the time of, you know, we're narrow casting. We live in echo chambers and people don't want to necessarily listen to different voices. It's how, how has the response been so far in terms of, you know, trying to provide that diversity? Well, hugely positive. And of course, there, always, there will always be some readers who will vehemently disagree with the idea, not only of what someone says, but the very idea that that person should be included. I had a wonderful um, essay in uh, my issue on continuity from my friend Jonathan Rosenblum, who's been a, uh, a spokesman of the Haredi community for right. many years. And I heard a great many people say, you know, the very idea that we should have a Haredi uh, writer in our pages was anathema to them. Well, I think if you have a magazine that is excluding a thriving and growing uh, Jewish community, there's something, uh, there's something really the matter with that. If you're really intending to speak to the Jewish people, as opposed to um, your your little tribe within within that people, but for the most part, I think the response has been very positive. In part because we're doing something that you don't really see see elsewhere. I want to draw, I want intelligent liberal readers to get a sense of what a thoughtful conservative perspective is, but also vice versa. Right. I mean, I have two thoughts from what you say. One is when I'm talking about when you were talking about the Haredim, I was greening because you know everybody talks about being inclusive, but they want only want to include those that agree with them. So there has been, you know, the Haredi population represents depends how you count twelve percent of the Jewish people, like. You know, and, and we talk a lot about inclusion with reason to include, for example, Jews of color in the conversation. It's very important. Now, either we're inclusive or we're not, in a sense, like we don't only include those with, with whom we have a 
ideological affinity. We include, we, we build a community that is a home for everybody or is not. Well, this is, I mean, this is the problem with the way in which language is used today. I mean, the most common phrase now is diversity, equity, and inclusion. These three words that taken literally mean things that most people would want. To have diversity, as you said, with those that think like you and whose values don't collide with yours. But what happens when the values do collide and how do you navigate that? And that's a, an art that we used to have and we lost to an extent, no? No, well, that, that's, that, that's true. Well, I don't know if we ever actually had it. I mean, one of the funny things about being a columnist is you begin to notice that people's estimation of your ability, say, as a writer, is uh, directly correlated to whether they agree with you or not. So uh, the way in which people make judgments about what is truly diverse or what is truly sophisticated uh, tends to always simply flatter their, their, uh, their preconceptions. So, so saying that, you know, it, it takes me to the second point that from your description of, of what Sapir does, which is in a way, it gives a voice to the same center, which still to the same rational center, which still constitutes probably 80% of the Jewish community. Like you have 10% of people in the far left, 10% of the far right. Given the dynamics of how media operates today and social media and, and the, the way influence circulates, especially in the, cyber, in the cyberspace, you have these 20% dominating the conversation. And what I find so interesting about Sapir is that it gives a voice and a language to these 80%, to that 80% in the middle. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it is absolutely true. And I think there are some uh, hard data to prove this uh, on a national basis that the loudest people that, you know, the ultra progressive American left, speaking only in American terms, is maybe 7% of the country, ultra right wing, the ultra right wing is, is, is 9%. They are abundantly represented in places like MSNBC and Fox News. And most Americans belong to something like, not just a, 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 a what's sometimes called the exhausted majority, but I also think sometimes to the silenced majority. You know, remember Nixon talked about the silent majority, yeah. but this is the silenced majority because they, are, uh, they have become afraid of the extremes on, on either side, um, because those extremes are prepared to use uh, tactics of intimidation, moral denunciation, yeah. ostracism, bullying and mockery on social media to, right. uh, to silence uh, the majority. And, and I wanna give voice to that silenced majority. But I, I will say this, I'm not afraid to publish people who are on the far right or the far left. They belong in the conversation, but I think they belong in the conversation in their proper representation, right. as right. opposed to giving them an outsized share of space just because they're the ones who are constantly reaching for the microphone. Right, and, and you said they've been silenced by bullying, in some cases by legislation, but in, in, in other cases, just by the algorithm of social media that, that are built to magnify, you know, a rational, you know, centered position on Twitter doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get any traffic. Well, this is, I mean, look, and that's what Twitter is. Twitter is an algorithm for outrage, yeah. right? I mean, the, the tweets that rise are the ones that get the most uh, 
um, likes or retweets. Right. And those tend to be the, the, the angriest, most pugnacious, most derisive and so on. The tweets that fall are the ones that are ratioed. That is to say the number of comments far outstrips the number of uh, retweets. Um, and so you amplify uh, voices of, of, of the extreme and you incentivize people to come out with their angriest, nastiest, snarkiest selves in order to gain currency on social media. Now that the way in which that's debased discourse, the way in which incentivized the worst among us and the worst within us is really frightening. I mean, I think historians will have to grapple with the way in which it has just uh, profoundly transformed American, uh, American public discourse. But again, my operating theory is this is not where America really is or really uh, when it's in a sober frame of mind where it wants itself to be. And it's no way to kind of think about, you know, issues that require something more than 280 characters to resolve. And those issues are, are way too complex and they become more and more complex, I think. And, and the probably part of the reaction to of the, or the attraction of those uh, extremes is, is that they tend to oversimplify, right? Like you take a very complex issue you present a sort of a clickbait slogan and uh, you think you solved it and, and you haven't. And it's very, it's very anguishing to realize how complex and how intractable things are today. Yeah, I mean, Twitter reflects our dumbest selves and, and the most depressing side of it is when you see people you know are smart and thoughtful people uh, debase themselves right. by some snide comment uh, on the medium. Um, it's almost like, I don't know, catching a, uh, a respected professor or a beloved mentor yeah. in some shameful private act, right? Right, you, right. You don't even wanna, you don't wanna even, even see it. The only difference is that rather than elicit shame, it elicits a kind of a, a sense of triumph, right. which is what makes it so, so uniquely toxic. So going back to the issue of, of discourse and, and what Sapir tries to do, I mean, when you were saying we would publish somebody from the far right or the far left, I mean, I, uh, within limits, let within me. limits, of course, let me probe a little bit there. Could the limit be the standard of proof? Meaning it's not about the ideas you hold, it's about the process by which you reach those ideas. Meaning if you come with something that is an extreme position, meaning if the scientific method took you there, if a good faith analysis of actual facts took you there, would you consider that position acceptable for debate? Sure. So I, I guess there's a, a, a distinction, and I'm thinking aloud here, but there's a distinction between a radical position and an extreme position. Right. And a radical position simply suggests that it is uh, I mean, or at least it suggests to me, although I'd have to think this through, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking yeah. out loud and maybe I'm, I'm walking into territory I don't <laughs> take myself toward. So am I, so am I. Um, but, you know, Galileo was a radical and in some sense, Einstein was a, a, a radical and Rosa Parks were radicals, but their radicalism was against um, a, a social consensus in pursuit of um, some 
natural or mathematical or moral truth. Extremism to me always has the suggestion of, of a kind of a, a, an anger uh, unmatched or un, unrelated to, or let me put it di differently, um, uninformed by um, deeper moral considerations or respect for other people. Um, and so maybe that I don't know if that's that's exactly what where I so want. So you're you're adding something something different. I'm saying I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying forget about you know moral considerations. Talk about academic standards. There is one thing to say it because you heard it on Fox News or from Alex Jones, and there is another thing to say it if you conducted good faith experiments and used real data. I mean, you may you may see that this completely problematic, but in a way, following, following standards or the scientific method was supposed to protect us from those, from those personal bias. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's not what I think it's a morally acceptable position, it's what the data and the facts and the experiments are showing me. But what I would like to do is broaden the terms of debate at least enough so that people are getting outside of their silos right. and are at least becoming comfortable with the idea that there might be points of view profoundly different from their own that need to be uh, addressed, understood, and where there is a possibility that you might even be persuaded by it. Right. Uh, so that's what I'd like to do. I think there are limits. You know, there's, there's a wonderful anecdote in... Um, Evelyn Woe's novel, Scoop, where the, uh, the newspaper proprietor insists that the only answers he can accept are something like yes or up to a point. <laughs> At one point, he, tells his, uh, he, he asks his, one of his editors, he says, Yokohama is the capital of Japan, to which the editor is forced to reply up to a point. Right. Um, and this is a... a up to a pointism, if that can be thought of as a school of thought, I think is a very worthwhile one, which is to say that, yes, we want to promote uh, as a tendency, much more open, freer, confident conversations than the ones that we are having, I think that we are having today. But that doesn't I don't mean- wanna draw, I don't wanna drive that thought to such an extreme, right, that it becomes, uh, socially corrosive or antithetical to the goal you are seeking to achieve, which is illumination rather than rancor. In um, other words, you're you're not an academic organization that needs to that seeks the truth for truth's sake. You well, also the subtitle is of Sapir currently is a journal of Jewish conversations. Right. And the concept of the conversation entails certain kinds of um, norms and uh, not exactly rules, but conventions, right? And, and so those conversations should be by definition expansive, but they're not a blood sport. Uh, the idea of a conversation is not to come away from it having destroyed your opponent. It's to come away from it having learned something from, your, uh, from, your, from the other person. Um, who you don't view as an opponent, you view as a partner in a, in a shared enterprise of seeking uh, a, a better understanding. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I think, a distinction worth 
worth worth worth considering here. I'm not an academic journal seeking right. uh, ultimate truths irrespective of social consequences. In fact, I'm primarily interested in social consequences. Right, right, and and it's. And it's interesting because you you kind of have the right and even the responsibility to define what those social consequences are, which is part of the conversation now. Like there seems to be an extreme between either a very repressive cultural dialogue of conversation or a free for all where like there's no there, there's no boundaries at all. And I've been advocating a lot for for both actually for for sort of free for more open conversations, but also for boundaries. Like, you know, in the sense that, that we, we are in a community that seeks to transmit certain values and it's okay to say what those values are. What you were saying about the extremes not representing brings me to the to the question of Zionism, which is one that you had the uh, the temerity <laughs> to dedicate an issue to, and it's kind of funny because by by looking at the Twitter sphere and, and not just Twitter, the other media, one gets the idea that the issue of Zionism is hotly debated in the Jewish community. But in fact, when you look at the data, when you look at Pew, for example, you know close to ninety percent of the Jews in America. This is not counting the seven million Jews or seven and a half million Jews that live in Israel consider Israel and Zionism as a critical part of their identity. So how so can- I have yeah. a line in my essay yeah. uh, in the current issue of Sapir. Um, the title is uh, Zionism Remains a Freedom Struggle. And right. um, I take a position that it is not worth having a conversation with an anti-Zionist on the subject of Zionism. And what I mean by that is if you are not interested in a, a Zionist future, that's you're entitled to that view. It's a free country. You're entitled to disseminate that view however you want to, whether you call yourself a Jew or not. But I'm not interested in having a conversation with you, right? It's, it, it, you have not passed, you have not purchased the cheapest ticket you know, the one dollar, like, like you have to buy to get right. into that, you know, the one dollar ticket um, uh, of, of, uh, of admission. Although I'm not sure that met metaphor is correct, because I think you can just go in for free or give anything you, you want. You make a donation, though. You make some kind of donation. Um, but so, you know, a guy like Peter Beinart, uh, who I'm friendly with, and uh, I'm going to be on his podcast, uh, uh, but I don't think, I think he has written himself out of a Zionist conversation. Now, he may not think that, and he's going to continue to opine about Israel and this or that. But for those of us who care about a future for Israel, he's just not even interesting anymore. Right. Um, because he just very, very much voluntarily walked himself um, outside of the gates of discussion. I'm more than happy to have a vigorous conversation with a very left-wing Zionist right. who thinks that the state of Israel needs to thrive, but it, it, it can only do so if it immediately vacates the territories and does X, Y, and Z, and takes the left, the leftward most position within that Zionist conversation. But the moment you say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in any kind of Zionism because I want this state destroyed, 
I'm just not interested in having a conversation with you. So I'm not going to ask an anti-Zionist right. to, uh, to be part of this conversation. Again, it's a free country. They can they can start their own magazines. Yeah, and, and they have. And they do. Yeah. And, and, and it's very interesting. I said, I was joking, you had the temerity to do that because we've been all in those workshops in which messaging experts tell us not to talk about Zionism because the term is divisive and toxic. And there you went, Dafka, like we do a whole issue of Sapiron Zionism, which I find amazing and, and great. But I think, I think that's, you know, the, the term Zionism has been vilified and used in so many different ways that it's, it sort of behooves on us to, to reclaim that, that, you know, that term. And if people tell us it's complicated to use it or it's toxic or don't talk about it in campus, well, there's two there, there's two parts to that statement. One is, yeah, it's complicated and it's problematic. That's the description, I, which it's a fact, but the prescription, don't talk about it, is one I don't accept. Actually, the opposite. We need to reclaim that term and set of- Well, I think, I think if, I mean, first of all, you're gonna have to use some kind of word. Right. So, uh, and, and whatever word you choose to use, is a word that your opponent is going to vilify, right? So right. if suddenly we decided to call it, um, you know, candy in Palestine or something like <laughs> that, it would end up being vilified in just the way uh, uh, Zionism is. But it's a more, it, it actually, it touches on something deeper. And this goes to, to a, a core issue in Jewish politics, which is, do you dedicate the bulk of your efforts to winning over friends, or do you dedicate the core of your efforts to creating thriving Jewish communities among those who are already a part of it and okay. don't need to be uh, won over, persuaded? I have a piece in the, in the fourth issue of Sapir in which I make the argument that Israel would do itself favors if it tried to win over the philo-Semitic world or the potentially philo-Semitic world. People who are you know, from Osaka, Japan and Seoul, South Korea to, uh, you know, um, uh, India and uh, other places who, who simply look at Israel as a successful country and admire its strengths and its capacities without seeing it through the filter of anti-Semitism or, 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 or a, a particular view about, about the Jews. And that's a worthwhile endeavor. I still think that ultimately what Zionists should be doing is thinking about how to create a thriving Jewish community in our ancestral homeland, right. period. And if you build it, they will come to mint a phrase. And remarkably, many have come. Do you know, I mean, one of the things that astonish me is that since the, 20th, the beginning of the 20th century, Israel has taken in 500,000 immigrants. The mark of a successful country is people want to move there, right? right. 500,000 immigrants out of a country of fewer than 10 million people is a remarkable number of people. 500,000 immigrants immigrating to a country where they know that their children are gonna serve in the military, that there's gonna be risks and dangers and terrorism and so on is even more remarkable. Right. And that's what you wanna be asking yourself, which is, are you building a thriving community that has powers of deep attraction because not, not the least because it has a certain kind of cultural and civilizational confidence. And if your question is, should you even use the term Zionism? 
it's a mark of a lack of confidence. So I'm right. not the right. least bit afraid to use the term Zionism. Right. And shifting gears a little bit, you know, we talk about the term Zionism, and I heard you speak out against another term about the term privilege. Yeah. And it's a term that I find problematic for a lot of reasons. You know, part of it could be actually linguistic. Like in Spanish, you know, privilegio, it means something that you kind of don't deserve. You, you kind of get it, it by virtue of, I don't know, you're part of the nobility or something, and you get, you get privileges that, don't, that, that, that you didn't earn. And I think, I, you know, I think that, that when you start talking about things that you earn by merit of privilege, or when you replace the language of merit by the language of privilege, you are in a dangerous terrain, especially for the Jews. Yes, I mean, because the language of merit suggests that it is deserved and the language of privilege suggests that it is undeserved, hmm. precisely for the same linguistic reasons that apply in Spanish, apply in English as well. Maybe a little less obviously, but they, right. they apply the same. The privileges of the church, for example, right. or the privileges of the nobility. One of the reasons why, I think actually the principal reason why Jews thrived in the United States in the way that they did not thrive in Europe is that in the United States from our earliest days, um, there was a notion that worldly success was a mark of divine favor. It's a Calvinist right. notion that the Puritans brought with them to you know, Plymouth Bay uh, 400, uh, 400 years ago. And if in fact it is true that earthly success shows divine favor, then it means that people who are successful, whatever group to, to whichever group they belong, right, have deserved the admiration of their neighbors, not the envy. In right. Europe, success spread envy as opposed to admiration, and envy breeds not just resentment, but a politics of resentment that ends up in things like the Holocaust. Uh, in the United States, that wasn't ever the case, but that rested on the idea that if you were successful, it's because you had done something right, right? right. Um, either in the eyes of God or simply because you were, you were talented and productive and hardworking and, and, and so on. Moving to the language of privilege in American political discourse is adopting an envy-based discourse. Um, or at least leads to an envy-based discourse. And I think that's profoundly toxic for American Jews who have been uh, among the minorities, the, 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 the outstandingly successful minorities in American life. I think that's, that's an empirical statement, no matter right. what field of life you, you look at. Jews have thrived. Long conversation as to why they thrived, but they did thrive. Yeah. Um, and they did thrive typically coming from under, underprivileged backgrounds, from poor backgrounds, and rose against a certain amount of prejudice and, and against their socioeconomic status. And people used to look at those Jews and say, wow, they did really well. Good for them. Now, if, if the question of privilege or wealth is associated with privilege and privilege becomes unearned, and therefore one gains the moral right to seek to strip people of their privilege, you're on your road to uh, Germany 1932. Right. And, and it's interesting because the other, side, the other side of that coin is 
victimhood. In other words, when there is privilege, there is a victim. And then you do have a competition in our society by which everybody tries to cast themselves as the victims of somebody else. Right. And it's one of the reasons why I have, I dislike, um, I dislike the language of victimization right. uh, in general. I mean, when, you know, I speak at a lot of Jewish events and one of the regular features at Jewish events is you'll see a video of uh, Israelis in Sterot, for instance, yeah. uh, running for cover from Palestinian rockets. Yeah. And you're supposed to engage in a kind of, I mean, obviously one feels a great deal of sympathy for the people who are faced with, with, with rockets, but the message is, look at Israelis, they're the victims in this situation. Well, Israel didn't come into existence to showcase Jewish victimization. The, the, other, the other way around. It, was, it came it as a rebellion. Yeah. yeah to end Jewish victimization. Sterot is a disgrace for the state of Israel that it can't properly protect its citizens, right? right? And, uh, and so for Israel or pro-Israel groups then to try to capitalize on this seems to me antithetical to what the business of Zionism is really uh, about, which is to end 2000 years of the Jew as victim. Correct. And, and now, when the entire political culture of, of entire countries is built upon victimhood and to, to, to grotesque extremes, right? Like you have, I mean, Trumpism was in a way an idea of victimhood, like portraying, you know, Trump himself portraying all the time, you know, himself, himself as, as a victim, you know, which is, which is ludicrous. But, but, it, but, it, but the victim has also moral, you know, impunity, like it has you no... Know, they have no agency and they have moral, you know, absolute moral uh, impunity and you can't build a society based on those basics. Right, and, and, and um, I mean, it, it's toxic to any community when the concept of being a victim takes hold as the central, I mean, there are, sometimes the communities are in fact victimized. Right. It's tragic and outrageous, but when victimization becomes a virtue unto itself, then those communities are going to seek to not end their victimization status, but to perpetuate it. Right. Uh, and that is the road to dysfunction. Yeah. I love your columns, but I also love your conversations with Gail Collins. Well, that's an interesting story because uh, those conversations, if you look for them on social media, they're nowhere. And yet, <laughs> of course, they're not, they're not explosive enough. They're not, you know, they're well, too but by some measures, they're the most popular thing. Uh, they're the most popular regular column at the New York Times or certainly yeah. among them. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that two uh, reasonable people from she from the center left and me from the center right having a lighthearted conversation uh, draws such a vast readership? And I think it's because we're modeling a form of human exchange of, of interaction, which you just don't find anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And people, people are hungry for it. I think it suggests that there is an audience that nobody has suspected for reasonable people capable of disagreeing without hating each other. And also I think because you, you, you're showing like what I think for now is the only important divide in politics, which is those that believe in, in liberal democracy and those that don't. Like something very interesting happened in, in France with the Macron election, which is 
you know, the far left and the far right voting against the guy who, I don't know, it depends how you look at it, could be either center left or center right, but it didn't really matter. The divide was between a liberal Democrat and people that don't believe in that system anymore. And I think that, that, that your column, your dialogues with Gail, when I read them, I think, okay, you guys are now, one is from the center left, one is from the center right, but they're in the same camp, which is in the democratic camp. They know democratic yeah. with, with small debate. But, and it looks to me that that's, that's a debate today, isn't it? So the, the, the divided Western politics for the, up until I'd say 2016 was between liberals and conservatives. Right. And it was over the proper size of the state in economic life. But on many, many things they agreed. So both liberals and conservatives at, of the time lived within the broad liberal framework of belief in human rights, individual dignity, right. civil rights, free speech, et cetera, et cetera. I think now the fundamental divide is between liberals and illiberals. Right. And I see a lot of politics of illiberalism on the left, especially the so-called woke illiberalism, right. yeah. you know, where either you agree with me 100% or you're a misogynistic, racist, blah, 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 or the illiberalism of the right, which is also either you agree with me 100% or you are a communist or whatever. And, and those forces are now quite powerful in both parties. In the Republican party, the fact is, illiberalism is becoming or has become the dominant stream. I don't think the Democratic Party is all that far behind, but I don't think that's where the American people really are. Right. Right. We're not yet a country that can bring itself to actively hate our neighbors just because they have views that differ from ours. And someone has to preserve the possibility of conversation. To finish, I wanted to just talk for a minute about the role you see for philanthropy in these, in all these issues, in, in maintaining the same conversation, in ensuring a Jewish future. And, uh, you know, obviously, as the Jewish Founders Network, we're very interested in the world of philanthropy. But also, I, I personally think that, that funders have a place of influence and they can model many of these behaviors. So, uh, you know, my friend Bob Rosencrantz uh, is behind the Intelligence Squared uh, debate program, which I think is a fantastic job of modeling intelligent disagreement at a very high level. And uh, to the extent that funders want to fund disagreement itself, uh, the art of disagreement, um, they would be doing, uh, doing a lot of good, which is to say, don't just take um, you know, one particular side, you know, encourage those important arguments for the sake of heaven. And I think that's, that's really a worthwhile philanthropic uh, effort. Yeah. Um, you know, the second thing is uh, invest in lots of different things, experiments. I generally think people, a lot of philanthropists are after the one big idea, right? I, I think they're better off taking smaller bets on diverse efforts and seeing, seeing you know, where, where they're gonna turn out. And the third thing I would say to a philanthropist is um, you're better off investing in a person in whom you believe than in a, an idea you think is right. 
because typically those persons will be fonts of imagination and energy who will themselves alight on the right idea or the right way to actualize an idea and implement it. People get carried away with big ideas that seem great in theory and then don't work out so well in practice for reasons that are very hard to see at, at a distance. So that would be, I guess that would be my, my advice to, to Jewish philanthropists. Uh, there's there's a little bit too much parochialism in, in Jewish philanthropy and, and a little bit maybe too much ego in Jewish philanthropy uh, uh, too. And uh, people who have made a lot of money uh, tend to think that because they've made a lot of money, they have all the best ideas too, right? All right. It's not always the case. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it's the case, but it's not. Uh, sometimes I tell people, some, you know, it's not the same skill to make the money than to give it away. You know, those of us who have not made so much money, <laughs> and this comes as a surprise sometimes to people who have made a little money, those of us who haven't made so much money haven't done so because we chose to lead a different life, not because we are uh, somehow intellectually deficient. <laughs> and and uh, I've sometimes encountered some philanthropists who seem to think that if you aren't worth a billion dollars, you're some kind of idiot as opposed to the possibility that maybe there's a, there are fulfilling ways to lead life that don't involve you know, the pursuit of, um, of great wealth. And at the same time, I respect that wealth and I hope it's put to great uses. Now, to finish, and I think, you know, first of all, this, this conversation, you know, hearing you and, and And reading you always, you know, it's, it's always refreshing, always thought-provoking, and, and always gives you hope because you have a capacity of, of saying things in a way that don't, you know, don't gloss over the problems. The problems exist and you name them, but you also tell us that there's a way out of them. So what, from all the things that you're seeing around you and from all the work you've been doing, what is the one thing that gives you the most hope? Uh, what gives me the most hope? Look, there's a reason why Jews have survived and survived against more improbable odds than the ones that we face now. And that is a quality of uh, thinking different, to use the old Apple advertising slogan, hmm. that has allowed Jews to find options and find exits where others didn't. The other thing that really basically gives me hope is the state of Israel. I think even 74 years into its existence, I was calculating this the other day. You know how old, you know, you know what, who was president when the United States was 74 years old? It was Millard Fillmore, okay? Millard Fillmore was president at the same time that where Israel is now. So it is a very young country. And right. when you think of how much it has achieved, the way in which it has not only transformed Jewish life and Jewish civilization, but the speed with which it has become a premier nation, even a small nation, but a premier nation is, is astounding. And I think, uh, you know, my own strong feeling is the best lies ahead for it, not behind. I think of the types of challenges Israel faces, and they're all serious, whether it's the Iranian bomb or, you know, internal Palestinian dilemma, 
or you know the tribalism of Jewish life. And all those problems seem to me to pale in terms of the challenges Israel faced at its birth. So I have a lot of confidence. Every time I, I fly to Israel, I feel better about the place and I feel better about the Jewish future. And so that is my enduring sources of optimism. Those yeah. are my enduring sources of optimism. And both things were achieved by a staunch rejection of victimhood. A good note to end on. Thanks so much to Brad Stevens. You can read Sapir at sapirjournal.org and Brett's Time Columns appears every Thursday and Saturday in the print edition and at newyorktimes.com slash opinion. Jeff and members can watch a video of Brett and Anne Applebaum discussing the future of democracy in the 2022 conference playlist on Jeff and's members-only video page. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about the podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter on at Spokoini. In line with the conversation I just had with Brett, I leave you with a quote that appears in a letter of Juan Luis Vives to Erasmus of Rotterdam in May of 1534. He said, we live in difficult times, times in which we can't speak or remain silent without risk. So don't remain silent despite the risk, speak up and join us next time on What Gives.